With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I have back with me James Kukios. James is a partner at Morrison and Forrester. We take a look at the firm's December International Anti-Corruption Newsletter. We take a deep dive into the Ericsson FCPA enforcement action, exploring such questions as why telecom is so susceptible to corruption, lessons that James sees for the compliance practitioner, and where there'll be more teleco cases in 2020 and beyond. It's a fascinating exploration of one of the largest FCPA resolutions of all time. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And I'm pleased again to have back with me James Kukios. James is a partner at Morrison & Forster. And we are here to talk about the firm's always great monthly and international anti-corruption newsletter. In this episode, we're going to focus on the December newsletter. So, James, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Always great to be here. So, Jens, we had some uh, interesting developments uh, that you guys wrote about in December. I'd first like to start off with uh, South Korea passing a bill to establish a new uh, international or new anti-corruption agency. Sort of get your thoughts on that. And then also, uh, is this sort of a continuing trend where prosecutors literally across the globe uh, are cooperating with each other in investigations and perhaps even enforcement actions? Well, the South Korea situation is is very interesting. I think, as most of your listeners probably know, over the last several years, there's been a series of very high-profile corruption scandals there involving presidents, former presidents, um, executive, highest-level executives of some of South Korea's crown jewel industries and businesses. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of clamor there for some kind of uh, reform to help focus anti-corruption efforts. And so one of the things that resulted from this, um, and as well as other factors, is that on December 30th of 2019, South Korea's National Assembly passed a bill that would establish a new anti-corruption agency to investigate allegations of corruption against high-ranking public officials. So in, in many ways, that could be seen probably as a positive development. You know, we've seen all these issues. We're going to take steps to create a new agency that really specializes in this. Um, and, and that's one thing, for example, the OECD often suggests um, when they're reviewing uh, countries' um, 
compliance with the OECD anti-bribery convention is to, cr- to create specialized units to focus on corruption cases, um, having that expertise and how to develop evidence and prosecute these cases. The OECD things can be very helpful. So maybe this is reflective of that as well. As always, there's a flip side. Um, this particular bill um, allows the president of South Korea to have a lot of influence over the um, appointment of the person who's going to head uh, this new agency. So under this bill, the the South Korean president will select the agency head from a pool of candidates recommended by a seven-member committee. That selection will be subject to confirmation by the South Korean parliament. and uh, but the the concern there is that this agency is outside the control of public prosecutors, and so depending on how much political influence there is in that selection, that could potentially insulate somebody like the South Korean president from from prosecution. So I think it's an interesting trend. We we always cover um, uh, when it when a major economy sets up a new. Um, public corruption agency, whether it's investigators or prosecutors, we always cover that because we think it has the potential to impact international businesses doing, you know, doing business in those countries. But it'll be very interesting to see how this one plays out given sort of the, the spirit behind it, but some of the criticisms that have been made about how, about the um, selection process. James, next up was uh, one of the really stunning cases. I don't know any other word to use that uh, came out in the past year. And that, of course, is the Erickson case. It was announced on December 6th. And I say stunning. Uh, the um, fine and penalty of uh, just over a billion dollars. It went to number one or number two on the all-time top 10 list, depending on how you count dollars and fines and penalties. Um, really, uh, it appeared that there was pretty high-level involvement uh, in the company and the bribery schemes. It was... Uh, multiple countries across the globe with multiple bribery schemes over uh, nearly 20 years. Um, And um, you have specific experience around the telecom industry and prosecuting those sorts of cases. So um, maybe it could start with four of the top six FCPA enforcement actions of all time now are telecom companies. You know, coming from the industry, energy industry, I certainly appreciate that. Knocking us off the top, but uh, why is telecom so uh, susceptible to corruption? Yeah, I think the easiest answer, Tom, is that um, it provides opportunities to interact with foreign officials in order to win business. Um, you know, we always we've seen over the last couple of years that no industry is immune from uh, from public corruption. Um, you know, we've seen industries like the financial industry that nobody would really think of or the retail industry who who found themselves in FCPA problems. Um, but telecom, uh, pharma, med device, uh, energy, defense, these are industries that in almost all countries, the government plays a huge role in either owning the industry or heavily regulating the industry. And so just as a simple matter, um, the telecom industry provides a lot of opportunities uh, for for businesses to have to interact with foreign officials in a way that there is an opportunity to pay bribes in order to win, um, obtain or retain business. So I think telecom is going to continue to be up there just because of that dynamic. So um, 
the um, what were some of the lessons that you would draw from this case that you would advise clients on going forward? Uh, I think one of the most poignant stories, on kind of the micro level, is there's a uh, um, in one of the countries in the Ericsson uh, information, uh, there's a suggestion um, that a bribe was paid several years earlier, and the officials were now several years later coming to collect on the promises that were made to them about how much money they were owed if they awarded this um, particular contract, and According to the allegations, at least, the person uh, who is now in charge of the business or compliance um, was not the person who was in charge when those promises were made, and he or she allegedly created a false uh, contract to try to get that money um, to the um, to the uh, third party to deliver to the officials. Um, now, the quote, and I think it's worth quoting, the person who set up this what DOJ uh, describes as a fake consultancy agreement, wrote an email saying, I have been asked to sort out the mess we got into in Kuwait. I have constructed the attached agreement. I do not want anyone to think that I had anything to do with this just because I am now cleaning it up. I think that's a very poignant moment. Um, the, the point of this is, to me, if you are involved either on the business side or the compliance side and you find something like this, you need to report this. You can't you you can't be an accessory after the fact. You can't um, try to cover this up. You can't try to perpetuate the bribery scheme. Uh, you need to do the right thing, stand up and report this. And on the macro level, I think that plays into the to the macro level. I mean, you said it, Tom. In my the way I would count this, this is the largest U.S. only anti-bribery case in history. All one billion dollars of that goes to the U.S. government. Um, you know, we've seen other very large resolutions where the the big number might be bigger, but some of that money went to other countries. Some of that money was reduced for various reasons. Um, this is a billion dollars to the U.S. government, the biggest penalty in, in U.S. enforcement ever, um, because people did not remediate things. They allegedly perpetuated things. So this is a very important, I think, for compliance professionals to say, look, this is why our job is not just the cost center. We actually are here to save money, like the billion dollars that had to be paid because people didn't remediate, didn't stop these payments, but instead perpetuated them. So James, in terms of um, the telecom industry, um, do you see this as an area that the Department of Justice will continue to pursue vigorously? And, And one of the reasons I say that is, uh, three of the four telecom cases involved one country and indeed even one corrupt uh, individual. Um, that country is uh, Uzbekistan, and the individual was uh, Gulnara Karamova, the daughter of the president. The Erickson case did not involve that country, involved a wide variety of other countries. Is this something you would feel like the DOJ would be looking at, or would you even take the the next step of, of really proactively advising your telecom clients that uh, you really might want to scrub your operations now because they may come looking. Yeah. And just on that point about the widespread, um, before I get into that, Tom, uh, the Ericsson case uh, covered Djibouti, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Kuwait. Um, when I was the department, I prosecuted a number of telecom cases involving uh, Latin America 
in the Caribbean. So I, I prosecuted, for example, the Haiti Teleco case, which obviously involved a Haiti state-owned telecom case. I did the Latinode case, which was Honduras, uh, Hondutel, uh, and worked on a number of other ones. In fact, <laughs> there are some – the Djibouti scheme, um, as alleged in the Ericsson information, sounds a lot like Latinode um, in terms of how explicit the emails are that the officials were – demanding money and that we need to get the money to them now. Um, that's exactly what happened in Latinode. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I guess the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, and on that note, I do think, look, for all the reasons we discussed, telecom is inherently high risk from an FCPA perspective because of the government interaction. Uh, this is going to continue to be an area where DOJ is, even if they're not actively looking for these cases, because DOJ tends not to... Um, uh, target industries, but rather, you know, they take the opportunities when they present themselves to prosecute these things. And I think um, this is going to be an industry that continues to present those opportunities because of the r inherent risks in there. The other issue there is, you know, once one telecom company or once one company gets in trouble, they often try to point to their competitors. Um, also, DOJ starts to look at the third parties that were being used, and oftentimes those third parties are being used by multiple competitors. Uh, and so it's always a good idea, um, as one of my colleagues likes to say, when you first read the Wall Street Journal headline about your um, com your competitor getting in trouble for an FCPA violation, uh, when you're done laughing, then go scrub your your own operations because there's a good there's a good chance that you have a very similar third party or you are doing business with that same agency, and you know uh, you, you can do a victory dance for a short time, but then you have to start turn back to yourself and say, wait a minute, are we are we next up here? So it is always a good idea when you know when you see somebody else in the industry uh, have these problems to take a look back and say, you know. Do we have James? Uh, when I looked at the Erickson case, uh, one of the things that struck me were the internal control failure, failures. We saw non-existent internal controls. We saw internal control failures. We saw internal control overrides. Uh, you looked at that, the internal control issue, and saw what I thought was a fascinating other issue around agency and internal controls. Could you explain that a little bit? Sure. There's a. Um... <sighs> especially in the light of Hoskins, there's been a lot of talk about whether DOJ is going to use this agency theory to try to expand liability for parent companies based on the actions of their subsidiaries. Um, the assistant attorney general actually heard a lot of this concern and made a um, gave a speech about it at the big ACI FCPA conference in Washington, D.C. in December of 2019, saying we're not, you know, we're going to use agency theory when it's appropriate, but don't be too worried. But what I've seen in a lot of recent um, uh, DOJ actions is, they actually seem to be expanding it quite a bit. Now, I could be wrong, and there may be something I'm missing here, but the way I read Erickson is um, DOJ is alleging that subsidiaries are agents of the parent, and that employees of subsidiaries are therefore also agents of the parent. Now, I'm sure DOJ would say there are certain facts that you know made Erickson the, the way it was, or uh, other cases the way it was, um, but I see this as a, as a very aggressive theory where DOJ is expanding parent liability based on the actions of subsidiaries under this agency theory, which they kind of were um, reawakened to through Hoskins. Uh, and I think there's some arguments to, to be made that it's inconsistent with the legislative history of the FCPA. But setting those aside for a minute, 
there seems to be a very interesting development, Erickson, which is it appears that DOJ is alleging that the subsidiary and its employee, the employees of the subsidiaries, um, because they were agents of the parent, they themselves had an obligation to implement effective internal controls in the subsidiary. And when they didn't, the parent is therefore liable for that on an agency theory. Now, it used to be, and I always hesitate because I hated this when I was in the department and the old veterans would come back and say, in my day when I was in the department, um, but I'm going to say that for now, uh, you know, we used to call that circumvention of internal controls by the subsidiary. And oftentimes that would result in if there was a U.S. nexus, um, you know, or if there was enough to bring a case based on that, we would charge the subsidiary rather than the parent for a circumvention, but, but we wouldn't bring that against the parent. If I'm reading Erickson correctly, it opens up the possibility that a circumvention by the subsidiary will now be treated as actually an internal controls failure by the parent, which I think is new ground. Now, I could be wrong uh, about this. I'm, I'm very anxious to talk to some of my old DOJ colleagues about their thinking here about this. But just from practical standpoint, if you look at the count two conspiracy in the Erickson information, one of the objects is an internal controls failure uh, by the parent. And um, every overt act alleged is actually a sham contract or sham payment. Nothing about you know willfully failing to implement internal controls. The theory, I think, being because an uh, employee of a subsidiary was involved in, in this uh, sham contract or sham payment, that person, therefore, knowingly failed to implement internal controls, which can be attributed back to the parent on an agency theory. I hope that was clear. It's very complicated even to me, so I, I hope I explained that myself well. But I just think the agency theory right now at DOJ is, is causing a lot of uncertainty in, in when parents and subs are going to be held liable for various conduct. James, we also had a resolution of a really longstanding case and one that is generated a lot of controversy in our uh, northern neighbor, Canada. That's SNC-Lavalin. Uh, what, uh, what were they able to do in December? Uh, so very interesting. On December 18th of 2019, the SNC-Lavalin group announced that one of its subsidiaries in Libya had pleaded gu guilty in Quebec uh, to a single fraud charge, uh, and that charges against the parent and its international marketing arm had been withdrawn by Canadian authorities. Uh, there were allegations that between 2001 and 2011, uh, SNC paid about 48 million Canadian dollars to Libyan officials, including the son of Muammar Gaddafi, to secure various construction contracts. Now, the parent and the two subsidiaries, the marketing arm and, and, and the, um, the Libyan construction subsidiary, were originally charged in six counts, including one count each of a violation of, of um, the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act, in other words, the Canadian Foreign Bribery Statute, and then one count each of fraud on, um, under the criminal code. Uh, interestingly, so they dismissed all charges against the, um, the parent and its international marketing arm, and the Libyan subsidiary only, only pled guilty to fraud, not to foreign bribery. So that was very interesting. Uh, and that same month, just a couple of days earlier, a former executive vice president of S SNC had actually been found guilty um, of 
fraud, bribing a, pro- a foreign public official, and laundering and possessing proceeds of the crime for the same actions. Um, so very interesting. The, the, the corporate case was resolved by a subsidiary only on a fraud charge where a former executive, I believe of the parent, was actually convicted of the foreign bribery offense. Uh, very interesting development. I think, you know, in, in many ways, it's probably going to be seen as a positive for Canadian enforcement. Um, C- Canada has not had the greatest um, track record from at least the OECD's perspective in terms of um, enforcing foreign bribery laws. They've been criticized several times uh, by the OECD for that. They've had a mixed record of success. In fact, other SNC executives were acquitted of a, of a separate bribery scheme a couple of years ago. Uh, the Canadians did successfully convict other executives of another company of violating their foreign bribery law in Canada. Um, but it's interesting. I think one thing you're going to see here is uh, this has been a long-standing investigation. It's been the subject of a lot of criticism um, for not getting done earlier. And they finally were able to resolve it, although maybe not in a way that the uh, it'll be interesting to see if the OECD is happy with the way they did it, given that they dropped the foreign bribery charges and only had a, a subsidiary plead guilty. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but uh, this has been a great exploration of the always great uh, Morrison and Forrester uh, monthly newsletter. And I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me again. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure. Happy New Year. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. We link to the Morrison and Forrester December International Anti-Corruption Newsletter in the show notes, so check it out. I hope you'll join me again next week when I have another interesting guest on the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.